Well, that means that we can do anything we want in the Sabbath because it's made for us. <laughs> the Bible defines that he made it for us for a particular reason. That is, that we might be rested and rejuvenated <clears throat> and uh, have an opportunity with nothing else to get in the way to reconnect with God because sometimes during the heat of the week, we don't stay as connected as we really ought to. So we have to pause every seven days and have opportunity to do nothing else. Everything, Every other kind of thinking is illegal on the Sabbath. So indeed, it was made for man, for man's uh, help. It's a need that we have, and everything else has to stop. Well, the world is pressured and pushed and pushed and pressured, and they feel like they don't have any time. <clears throat> they're busy doing this, busy doing that, and their busyness, it seems, never ends, so they don't get any relief. But we get relief every seven days where we just block everything else out, stop what we're doing, and rest spiritually and physically. So what a blessing that is that most people simply do not have. Even Sunday keepers have to shop and play golf and go fishing and all those things too. And that's just part of their merry-go-round, uh, part of the, the busyness that they have to do. And they think they're relaxing, but they're really not because they're just pursuing something else a little different. Anyway, this sermon is not about uh, the Sabbath per se. We came down into First John 3 last time, <coughs> and I think got down to through verse 14. To reiterate, uh, John, the apostle, got what Christ had to say. He listened very well. And when he speaks the written word, whether it be the book of John or these three short books or letters here at the end of uh, Scripture, he speaks mostly of love. That is the overall theme. And Paul got it when he said that great love is the greatest out of faith, hope, and love. Uh, love we will always need. Faith will be accomplished. Hope will be fulfilled. But love will continue. And it is, therefore, the most important thing. So he <coughs> delves into the subject quite deeply here to show what real love is all about. That it isn't just human feelings or emotions. Yes, those can be involved in love. But really love is expressed in keeping the commandments of God, the last six of which are aimed at how we get along with our brothers here on this earth. Whether they be brothers simply by being human, or whether they be spiritual brothers by dint of being called out from the world, and following God's way. So he's talking mainly to the brethren here in verse 13. Let's go back there. He says, not Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. Uh, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He that loves not his brother abides in death. <clears throat> so he's defining it here very, very closely that we might think we love God, and we might think we put Him first, 
But if we don't love our brother in the way that God intended, he says we're still following after death. That we will not live eternally. That's what death is. We have to love the brethren. Then he continues in verse 15, Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He just, above here last week, we went into that, how Cain killed his brother Abel out of jealousy and covetousness. Uh, He wanted the goodwill of God and the blessing from God that Abel was getting, but he didn't go about it right and didn't receive it. So instead of doing what he was supposed to do, he simply killed his brother. Now, he's saying here that if we have hate in our heart toward our brother, that we are a murderer. It's the same spirit, same attitude. Uh, Whether we physically go through with it or not, uh, we can't hate our brother and have the love of God. Now, he was, as I said, listening. Let's go back to Matthew 5 for a moment. When Christ gave the first sermon, really, of his ministry, uh, he laid out what the new covenant is about, our thoughts and actions and what we should be. So, in verse 21, he addresses this same topic that John is in 1 John 3. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Without a cause is not in the Greek, by the way. Uh, Whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. So it doesn't matter whether it's righteous or false anger. To have anger... Continuing anger against someone breaks the spirit of the law. And it doesn't matter whether that person has done something wrong or has not done something wrong. There is no cause that allows for continuing anger, okay? We have to get over it. God says He is very slow to anger. And he says he is very quick to get over his anger. So we should both be very, very slow to anger, as God is. And if we do get angry, we should get over it very rapidly. Because that's the way God thinks, and that's the way God is. His anger is only for a moment, he says, and other expressions of that kind. So, block out without a cause. Because that's not what Christ said. Now, if we leave the without a cause in there, it gives us justification for whatever anger we think we want to retain towards someone. Because we think our cause is just. Well, no. Anger becomes wrong if it continues regardless. So, if you're angry with your brother, you shall be in danger of the judgment. And he has three degrees here of anger, worse and worse. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, or my margin says, vain fellow, more uh, favorably put, 
uh, that way than Raqqa, because that doesn't mean anything to us. But to someone who we consider prideful or vain or full of ego or whatever, and we dismiss them as a result of that. See, the first degree is being angry and staying that way. The second degree is to write someone off because we think, ah, they're just proud and vain and full of ego, and what value is that? So you're in danger of the council if you go that far and have that kind of attitude towards someone. Remember, we're all made in the image of God. Every person who is born on this earth is a child of God. And we have no right whatsoever to make any judgment or condemnation of any of God's children. That's his job, not our job. He takes it even further. But whosoever shall say, you fool, shall be in danger of Gehenna fire. So it starts and gets worse and worse, because once you have continual anger, you then begin to dismiss people and write them off because they have no real value. And then you go from that point to calling them a fool. And that means totally worthless, a total condemnation. That person has no value whatsoever. And once you judge someone that harshly, you are yourself in danger of Gehenna fire. Now, those are the very clear words of Christ. And then here is what he explains, if you have a problem with any of those three degrees of anger and worthlessness and hate. Therefore, if you bring your gift, your prayer, to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave there your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, if there is animosity, if there's hate, misunderstanding and offense, we should do everything we can to resolve that before we even take our prayer to God. Because he says that if we hate our brother, he won't hear our prayers. So what good is it to pray anyway if you still have these attitudes in your heart and mind? Now there comes a point where it's impossible to reconcile. Uh, Esau could not be reconciled with Jacob. And I don't think that Paul could be reconciled with Alexander the coppersmith either. <laughs> you know, there's a certain point at which people turn from God's way to the point you can't really do anything about it. Now, you can try, but uh, there's a point where you have to stay away because he says that we are not to have anything to do with an angry person, not to have company with an angry person. So if someone is filled with anger, you can do what you can to try to resolve it, but if they remain angry, you're supposed to stay away from them. You're not supposed to be around them at all, because it can begin to affect you. Whether that anger is directed at you or whether it's directed at somebody else, they are angry, and an angry person we are to have nothing to do with. Now, you should be able to read emotion. You should be able to discern when somebody has an angry spirit. And if they do, you're not to be around that. 
but we justify it, and some people, they want to hear anger. They want to be angry themselves, so it spreads, and that's what we're supposed to do is stay away so that it doesn't spread to us and to others. Now, he just flat out says it. If you hate your brother, you are a murderer. Uh, you have a spirit of, of killing. And eternal life does not abide there. Verse 16, Hereby perceive we the love of God. Here's how you know the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Service, giving, love, helping, wherever we can. There's where the love of God is perceived. He laid down our, his life both as he lived it for others, and then he laid it down physically by dying. So he laid it down on two levels there. We are asked just to do it on one level to serve our brother while we live. Now, there may be some of us who are martyred, and we have to lay down our life, but that won't necessarily be for our brethren. Uh, Christ did it that others might benefit. We might be martyred, but there's no necess- not necessarily any benefit in that for other people. But laying it down on a daily basis has value. But whoso has this world good, and sees his brother have need, and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? We're to be giving, to serving, to helping, whatever way we can. And if we don't, then how is the love of God in us? Because that's the way God is. He's giving and serving. He's helpful. He wants to give us Blessings in this life as well as eternal life. Do we have the same attitude toward those around us? Verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Saying you love somebody doesn't mean anything if you're not willing to sacrifice your time, your energy, your life for them. That's deed and truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Now, if you question uh, your baptism, you question your conversion, well, ask yourself, how much am I still selfish and how much am I willing to give and serve others? Uh, Whatever way that I can find to do so. Uh, If we see the fruits of giving and serving and helping in our lives, then we can be assured that the love of God is in us. And then he says in verse 20, For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. That's quite a statement. Let's, let's uh, pair it with verse 21. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. Now he's echoing uh, a thought that he addressed earlier in which I commented on. Uh, That is that we have to forgive ourselves first. We should not be living in the past. And he brings it up again, so I'll bring it up again. Uh, It's hard to forget the past and move on forward seeking the things that are ahead. 
it's real easy for us to condemn ourselves for what may have been our life in the past or mistakes we made, sins we committed, or whatever. Uh, but if Christ's blood was shed for us, then if we repented and moved on, those sins are forgiven, and we need not be concerned about them anymore. Because the more you worry and fret over them, the less confidence you have in God and in eternal life. And really, you are denying the sacrifice of Christ when you deny yourself forgiveness. Right? None of us has to worry about his past. All we have to worry about is today and tomorrow. Now, other people may worry about your past, but that's their problem. You shouldn't. Okay? Is that clear? We've said it now two weeks running. Whatever the past is, is gone. You can do nothing about it. And Christ has done something about it. So, you forget it and move on. The kingdom of God is not behind you. It's ahead of you. Be moving forward, not backward. Accept Christ's sacrifice. Do you really think you love Christ? Do you think His sacrifice was big enough for you? Are you so vain that you think your sin is bigger than Christ's blood? Now, we don't look at it that way. We might feel remorse. We might feel guilty. We might feel conscience. We might wish we hadn't done. But what good does it do to sit and think about those things? It does you no good. All it does is depress and discourage and frustrate you. Forgetting those things which are behind, let us press toward the mark of the high calling that we have. Don't be bound. Don't be tethered. Don't be held back by the past. Learn from it. Don't repeat it. But don't sit and worry about it either. Because it is in the blood of Christ and forgiven. If you don't believe that, then you don't believe in Christ and His blood. And what's the point? If we can't accept the forgiveness of God, then what's the point in this life? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, haven't they? I have, you have. And therefore, the only way we can live is that we be forgiven, because the wages of sin is death. <clears throat> and we can be forgiven, and have been, if we have repented and moved on. Now, if you still got sin, you need to get rid of that so you can move past it. So then he says, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. If you're not living in the past, worrying about the past, then you have confidence in the blood of Christ that it actually did atone for your sin and that you are cleansed from it and you can live in good conscience before God. Is it vain to ask for, for God's mercy and forgiveness every day? If you ask for it, do you accept it? And if you do accept it, then why are you still worried about the things that you're asking forgiveness and mercy for? 
You need to come to the point that you have faith in the blood of Christ, and therefore your heart not condemn you for the past. Others may, but again, that's their problem, not yours. You know what you've confessed before God. You know what you've forsaken. You know what you've repented of. They don't. And if they are angry and upset with you, then it's their problem, not yours. Verse 22, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. Everybody wants their prayers answered, right? Whatever we ask, we receive of him. And then a condition is given. Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now, from the other side of the coin, what he's saying is, we don't receive of him, and our prayers are not answered if we don't keep his commandments. And as I said, I think, last week, those who say the commandments are done away and you don't have to keep them are condemning themselves in their own words. Now, everything that Paul had written had been written by the time John wrote this epistle. Everything that Peter had written had been written. Everything that Christ said had been said. John was the last apostle standing. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the book of Revelation at Christ's behest. And he was very, very close to Christ when Christ was walking the earth, closer than any of the other apostles. So he was the last man standing, if you will. Everything had been said that had been, was going to be said. Everything had been written that was going to be written except the book of Jude, perhaps, and the book of Revelation at this point. Now, did John get it or not? <laughs> you know, you, as Peter said, Paul wrote many things hard to be understood. And you can get confused in Paul's epistles if you're not careful and think that the law is done away and we live by grace only. You can get confused when you read Paul. And people who say the law is done away with don't quote John, and they don't quote Peter, they don't quote James, they don't quote anybody but who? Paul. Because his words can be rested, they can be twisted, they can be misunderstood. And Peter even said, he and Peter understood, but he said some of the things Paul wrote are hard to understand. I ask you a question. What's hard to understand about verse 22 of 1 John 3? Is that hard to understand? Looks pretty simple to me. Whatever we ask, we receive because we keep His commandments. They're not done away. They're still in effect. He will answer our prayers if we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight, and He won't if we don't. Pretty simple. There's, there's no argument there. The commandments are there to be kept if you want to have your prayers answered. He hears not sinners. What is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law. That's in this same chapter, verse 4. 
Whoso commits sin transgresses the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Are you a sinner? Well, that means you're breaking the law. And if you say you don't even need to keep the law, then you're just committed to a life of sin because you don't care about the law. You think you have grace. What is grace? It's unmerited pardon because you please God. That's what he says here. If you keep the commandments, you're going to be doing those things that are pleasing in his sight. And loving the brother consists, the brethren, consists of six of those commandments. Verse 23, and this is his commandment. Here's his commandment. That we should believe in the name of his son, Emmanuel the Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. What did he say? He boiled it down to two things. Ten commandments, but it could be summarized as love God and love your neighbor. That's the commandment he gave us. And he that keeps his commandments dwells in him, and he in him. We dwell with him, and he in us. And hereby we know that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given us. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. And the whole of churchianity basically believes the commandments are of none effect and done away. And therefore... They do not believe the Apostle John. They are throwing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John out of the Bible. They are throwing the Epistle of John out of the Bible. They are not led by the Spirit of God. He's talking about the commandments here when he says, Hereby we know if we have the Spirit of God. It's all about his commandments. Now let's go to chapter 4. <clears throat> Beloved... Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, what does he say this in the context of? He's been talking about commandment keeping all the way through, hasn't he? So when he says, try the spirits whether they be of God, uh, it's going to have to do with whether people are keeping the Ten Commandments or the Two upon which hang the law and the prophets, love God and love man. So you try the spirits, and if they do not have the spirit of obedience to the law of God, then that isn't the law of God. If there's a spirit of murder, as he just said, or hatred, uh, that person does not abide in God, nor does God abide in him. Anger and hatred do not mix with the spirit of God. They just don't, they're, they're incompatible. They're like oil and water. They won't mix. They won't stay together. Now he explains a little more what he means. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. So he says, try it to see if it's the Spirit of God. Well, one easy test is go back and read the fruit of the Spirit of God and read then the works of the flesh there in Galatians. And if you see somebody who has love and joy and peace, and long-suffering and patience, then those are fruit of the Spirit of God. But if you see anger, hatred, malice, uh, lawlessness, and all those things, then that's the Spirit of Satan. So then he says, 
in the in definition here in terms of what he's saying in this context. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Emmanuel the Christ is coming in the flesh is of God. Now, it's critical that you understand that the word there is not come, it's coming. It doesn't mean do they believe that Christ walked the earth. What it means is, do we believe that Christ is coming and living his life in us? That through the Spirit, we are walking in the Spirit, and Christ is living his life in us. That's what coming in the flesh, or abiding in our flesh, might be a good way to put it. Now, how did Christ live? He kept his Father's commandments. And his first sermon showed commandment-keeping and raised it to a higher level, not of just physical compliance, but thought, spiritual compliance. So if he comes and dwells in the flesh and is coming and living his life in you, then keeping the commandments will be reflected in your life. Now, if you see the works of the flesh instead of the commandments of God, then he's not coming and living his life in you. Your thoughts ought to be his thoughts. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ himself. Bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. So if he's coming and dwelling in you, you're going to be thinking like he thought and acting like he acted. So that's an active verb there. Christ is coming. It's not did come, but is coming and dwelling in our hearts and minds so that we think like he thinks. Uh, that's how you try the spirits. Is that person walking after the Spirit of God and showing the fruit of the Spirit or walking in the flesh and showing the Spirit of Satan? That's how you try those spirits. And every spirit that confesses not that Emmanuel the Christ is coming in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Well, that's the whole of churchianity today, basically, says the commandments are done away, and Christ is not keeping his commandments through your life. Therefore, that is Antichrist. Antichrist means lawlessness or against the law of God and therefore against God. That's what Antichrist is. We're looking for an Antichrist here at the end of the age. What does that mean? It means they're against the way, the law of God. Anti or against Christ's way. So anyone can have a spirit of Antichrist. Anybody can be against God's law. And there are whole great big churches who are against his law. Get away from the law. It's a dirty, nasty, rotten thing that'll kill you, they'll say. No, breaking it will kill you. The law won't kill you. If you keep it, it will preserve you. If you break it and aren't forgiven, it'll kill you. But that's the point. We go to Christ and we get forgiven so that the law doesn't kill us. 
So Antichrist, or against the way of God, was there then, and it's against, it's here today. And he says it would be in the church. People who are against their brother. Full of hatred and anger and malice and hurt in their hearts. And that they will betray one another to the death. That's Matthew 24. Alright, then verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So he's saying here, the Spirit of God dwelling in you has helped you overcome malice and hate and anger and lying and cheating and adultery and fornication and all those things that the flesh desires to do and does. We're overcoming that. He says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Overcome their way. Overcome Satan's way. Because the power of God in you is greater than the power of Satan. Now, you and I do not have power over Satan on our own. We just don't. He's stronger. He's smarter. And he can deceive so very quickly, and he can lead us down a wrong path before we even know where we're headed and wind up in the wrong way. But God is greater than Satan. And if we stay close to God, then Satan will flee from us because God is more powerful than he is. And he doesn't like to be around godliness. So if we're godly, we don't have to worry too much about Satan. But there's a spiritual battle there because we are not by nature godly. And we have a battle to become godly. And the only way we can do that is to draw near him in reviewing his word and prayer and meditation on his ways and seeking him with all our heart. Because Satan is is a devouring lion seeking whom he may, well, destroy or devour. So we should be overcoming the world. Verse 5, they are of the world, therefore speak they of the world. That's the things they talk about, is the 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 things that the world is interested in, believes in, wants to do, this life. Our interest is not so much in this life as it is in the life to come. And that needs to be our focus. What does this life have to offer? Some pleasures here and there from the things that God has made. But then it all ends. And it's over. It's done. And Solomon said it there in the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> you know, you get old and the, the lights are dim and the body is beginning to weaken and beginning to die. And then it's over and gone. So, the dead know nothing, he said. They have no thoughts. They have no, no memory. Whatever they did in this life, they've forgotten. And most everybody else has too. And will very quickly. So unless there's something beyond that, this is a futility. What's the point? And that's the reason he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes the way he did. It was written from the standpoint of a human life. <coughs> he does show some overtones that we had better obey God because that's the only chance we have of this life having been worth something. But Ecclesiastes can be 
a pretty discouraging, frustrating book in some respects if we have hope in this life only and the frustrations that it produces. So we're not of the world, and we have something else to focus on. The people of this world mainly focus on the pleasures, however temporary, of this life, and then it's done. And they hope they get to go to heaven someday. They don't think much about it. They just think about what they're doing and what they want to do, for the most part. And then maybe on Sunday morning they hear 15 minutes of platitude about how you're going to die and go to heaven. And then I don't know what you're going to do. Just roll around heaven all day, I guess. I like the cartoon depicted the guy laying on a cloud. Nothing to do but just lay on the cloud. And he says, man, I wish I'd have brought a magazine. (laughs) Something to do. Well, people don't understand the world tomorrow and what God has planned. But if they're, they're the world. They speak of the world. They speak of worldly things, and the world hears them. But we're supposed to be speaking of heavenly things. We're supposed to be speaking of the way of God and the kingdom of God. It even tells us there in Malachi that those who speak of these things will be the ones that he thinks of when he makes up his jewels. So, John's really saying that. Then he goes on to say how we are to think. We are not we are of God. He that knows God hears us. He that is not of God hears not true things of God. How far do you get? They won't listen. They won't here. They won't listen to us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. If they don't listen to what we have to say, then they are in the spirit of error, the spirit of the world, and not in the spirit of God. Sometimes you see people in a raunchy, rotten, wretched attitude, and it doesn't make any difference what you say. They won't change it. And if they won't change it, they're not listening to God. Now, God has given us the truth, hasn't he? And the world doesn't want to hear it. And when the two witnesses start preaching the truth of God, the whole world will hate them. They won't want to hear it. And we have it on a lesser plane, whether when we try to speak to friends or relatives or someone about the truths of God, that will occur. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of, begotten of God and knows God. So you're begotten of God's Spirit if you have love toward your brother, toward other human beings. And it doesn't matter what they do to us, does it? It doesn't make any difference how much they despise us or hate us or put us down. We're to love them. Now, Christ is the leading example of that. He had people who totally and utterly despised him, hated him with a passion, didn't think there was anything good about him. And what did he say when they persecuted him, flayed him, and killed him? 
Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. So when people have hate and anger and animosity, we're not to return any anger, hate, and animosity. We are to look upon them as children of God, no matter what condition they're in, and love the person while not approving the attitudes. Christ and the Father sent Christ here to save sinners, not to save the righteous. It's the sinners that need saved. So we do not have any right to be angry or hateful or have animosity toward anyone. I hope we get that. It is ungodly. It is not the right attitude to have, no matter what they say or do to us. That shows that we're begotten of God and know God. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. And he even said, it's easy to love your friends. It's hard to love your enemies, right? That's right. It is hard. But you've got to do it. <laughs> now, if we have enemies, God says that he's going to do a certain... He's going to treat enemies a certain way if they don't follow him. And some of them may go into tribulation. Some of them may have to die. And that's okay. But I don't pray that they lose eternal life. My prayer is that no matter what you or I or anyone who despises us have to go through, that ultimately we repent and go into the kingdom of God. Now, if someone's not protected and goes into the tribulation, there is a wonderful opportunity to repent under great pressure. And Zechariah even says that about a third will repent during that tribulation. So just because someone goes into that doesn't mean they're lost. And we can pray that they repent. And God tells us that those who rebel right here in Anatoth are going into the tribulation and they're going to die there, man, woman, and child, and not have any remnant. And I don't like to see that. And I pray that there will be repentance and they'll be in the kingdom of God. So we can't hate anyone, no matter how they despise us. Let's remember that on a very close and personal level here. These aren't just theories. I mean, this is real life, and it's here, and it's now. And we need to have the right attitudes. It doesn't matter what somebody else thinks of us. We can't think evil and be angry at them. We just can't do it. Matthew 5. We already read it today. Uh, verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Well, I, I guess I already said that ahead of time. But that's how He manifested His love to us, is by sending His Son, his son to forgive the sins of sinners. I've been a sinner, you've been a sinner. Every human being who's ever walked the earth has been a sinner. 
Now, there's some babies that have died that never walked the earth. <laughs> Maybe they never sinned because they didn't get old enough to do it. But if they'd have gotten old enough, they would have. So we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And none of us can look down on anybody else and say, you sinner, you. If we do that, we do not have the attitude of God. He sent His Son and manifest His love to send Him to save you and me. And if we say someone else is not saved, cannot be saved, then we're pronouncing judgment on them that is not our judgment to make. God judges His children. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He first loved us. We didn't first love Him. We loved ourselves. We wanted ourselves taken care of. We wanted ourselves comfortable and satisfied and happy and fulfilled. And we wanted what we wanted, and we wanted it now, from childhood on. And that's the way the world lives. But he didn't put himself first. He put us first and died for us. Can we do that for others? We can lay down our life for others. Sometimes, maybe if they're against us, we can't do anything on an individual level. But we can certainly pray for them, can't we? And if we can pray for them with a positive attitude, then we have the attitude that God had towards sinners, that they might be saved from their sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, Shouldn't it be apparent then that we ought also to love one another? No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and His love is perfected in us. So he says, you haven't seen God, I haven't seen God. We, we don't know Him completely and totally yet. But he says, if we love one another, then we know that God is dwelling in us. Now, isn't that what it, doesn't that tie in with what I said earlier in verse 2, where he says, He that confesses that Emmanuel the Christ is coming in the flesh, dwelling in the flesh, is of God. Not just that he came to the earth, but that he's living in the flesh. All right? What does he say in verse 12? If we love one another, God dwells in us. He is coming and dwelling in the flesh. That's part of the context that proves uh, what I said in verse 2. He dwells in us and His love is perfected in us. Because if His love's perfected in us, that means we love even those who are sinning. And we do not condemn them or become angry and stay angry at them or tell them that they're vain or that they're a fool. That is not the way God thinks. His attitude and mind is to ultimately save them all. That's what he wants. And we should have that same approach. Verse 13, Hereby know that we dwell in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. If you're walking in the spirit with the same mind and attitude and thoughts of Christ, then we know we're walking and have the spirit of God. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The world was a dark 
in sin. And he sent to save a darkened, sinful world. Whoever, whosoever shall confess that Emmanuel is the Son of God, God dwells in him, and he in God. Now, you've got to accept the real Christ, the one who said to keep my Father's commandments. And I will dwell in you, and you will keep the commandments, and that shows that I am dwelling in you. So confession that he exists is not all that he's talking about here. This whole book is talking about doing what God says and keeping his laws and commands. And that pleases him. So confessing he is the Son of God means confessing what he is, how he is, who he is, what he does, and then following that. That's what a real confession is. Verse 16, And we have known and believed the love that God has to us. We've known it. We've understood it. We've accepted it. And we have passed it on. We've paid it forward to others. And he that dwells in love dwells in God, and God in him. And apart from God's commandments, you simply cannot dwell with God. Satan broke his commandments. Satan came to be full of pride, anger, ego, jealousy, and tried to take over God's throne and what was God's. He became greedy and selfish. And if we become greedy and selfish, uh, then we are like Satan, not like God. Uh, verse 17, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Now, Christ never broke his Father's commandments, never sinned once. Now, the less we sin, the more bold we can be come the day of judgment. The sin will kill us. And that's why he says that which is of bad conscience is sin. What you are doing at a moment or thinking might not actually be a sin, but if it bothers your conscience and you think it's sin and you do it anyway, then it is sin to you because you're going against your conscience, which should be guided by the law of God. And therefore, you're breaking character by doing what you think is sin. Now, you might find out at some point later in time that that is not sin. Uh, let's say alcohol. You may have been convinced as a hard-shell Baptist years and years ago that all alcohol was a sin. Now, when you come to begin to understand the truth of God, you begin to grasp that the Bible does not condemn alcohol as a sin. But it may take some time for you to get used to that idea. And it may be against your conscience. So until you can resolve that issue, then you shouldn't have alcohol. Now, you might have also learned in the hard-shell Baptist church that hard-shell crabs and pigs were good eating. <laughs> you know? And then you have to re-educate your conscience again and learn that those things are not to be eaten. 
Now, that the, the inverse may be true there in that you don't have any conscience about eating pig or crabs because you always have and you thought it was okay and you still feel like it's okay because you've always done it. But you have to have your conscience re-educated by God to understand those things are unclean and I don't do that anymore. Just as you have to re-educate it on something you thought was a sin that isn't. Now, drunkenness is still a sin. But alcohol, per se, is not a sin. So, we slowly re-educate ourselves, don't we? I remember in the Methodist church, even as, as a little guy, that, uh, oh, alcohol was sin. And nobody in our family drank alcohol except a couple of my wayward uncles. Uh, and boy, were they condemned for drinking alcohol. Well, they were both drunks, and they needed condemned for that, I suppose. But nonetheless, we had been in the church, the family, for some time, I think probably two or three years. And my dad or my mother had never had alcohol in their lives growing up in the Methodist church, and it bothered them. I remember very distinctly the first drink that any one of, either one of them or the children ever had. We heard one night about two, three o'clock in the morning a great crashing, banging noise. So we went down to the highway to investigate, and a car had rolled down there. I don't remember if it was two cars or just one. I think it was just one car accident. It had rolled off the highway and was gone upside down, and all the contents were all over the prairie there. And uh, I got looking around, just a little kid, you know, and I found the can of beer. Of course it was. Out there in the weeds. And I picked it up and took it home. I showed it to my parents, and everybody looked upon that can of Coors as evil incarnate. So we put it in the fridge. And I don't, because they had heard that according to God's word, it was okay to drink. But their conscience had not been re-educated enough so that to them it wasn't sin. And my memory may fail me here, but I think that that can of beer sat in there for months. And then one night, out it came, and everybody had concluded that, well, God says it's okay to drink. So that one can of Coors was opened and passed around, and Dad had a little, and Mom had a little, and I had a little, and my little brothers and sisters had a little, and that was the end of that can. And I don't think anybody really cared that much for it. They hadn't had alcohol before, and it tasted strange and bitter and whatever. Anyway, the point is that we need our consciences Educated. You cannot let your conscience be your guide unless your conscience is educated by God's Word. A lot of people have said, well, let your conscience be your guide. Well, if you've never been taught that this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, your conscience is going to let you do it. That's the way the world is out there. If it feels good, do it. They haven't been trained not to do this, 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 or that. They just do it because it feels good or looks good or sounds good or smells good or tastes good. That's their conscience. Now, that conscience can't be your guide. 
This word has to be your guide. So re-educate it wherever it needs re-educated. Our love has to be made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Now in verse 18, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Why do we fear God? Well, we're beginning to get a little wisdom. We fear Him because we understand He has the keys of eternal life and eternal death. So we begin to fear God and have great awe and respect for Him who contains and controls whether we live or die. But the more obedient we become and the closer we walk in the Spirit, then the less fear we have and the more confidence we can come to have. Now, we would all like to be confident. We all like to feel that everything is good and that we're in the good favor of God and man, don't we? Well, the more problems we still have and the more we still sin, the harder it is to feel confidence in the future. Fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. So if we still have fear, then we still have some growing to do. Now, that doesn't mean that the fear of God should ever be forgotten. We always have to understand that He is there and holds the keys of life. And never forget that because that can affect the way that we live our lives day to day. And if we forget that, then we can very easily fall back into sin. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Him is not in the Greek there. We love. We just love. God and man. Because he first loved us. If he hadn't loved us and started us toward deliverance and toward his kingdom... We still wouldn't love him just like the world doesn't. The world hates God. If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. Now, can that be put any plainer? <laughs> if we say, I love God, and hate, then we're a liar. And then people say, well, I don't hate, I'm just mad. <laughs> I don't hate, I'm just angry. I don't hate, he's just a sinner. Well, I think Matthew 5 and the three degrees there pretty well cover that. We cannot have rancor and animosity and anger toward our brother, or it is hate and it is murder. And if you try to justify an attitude that you have toward someone uh, and say you love God, you're just a liar. The truth isn't in you. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? We can get ourselves we love God, if, but if we don't love people that we've seen, how can we say we love him? We haven't. Verse 21, And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God love his brother also. That's the, first, that's the two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And you have to keep all ten. You can't just keep the first four. And ignore the last six. It has to be together. And without the whole package, you're not of God. And he says that the way you feel toward 
your neighbors and your brothers is the way you feel toward God. You can't separate it. People try to, but you can't do it. And John makes that perfectly clear here. He will judge us, he said several times, in the way that we judge our brother. If we have mercy and patience and forgiveness, he will have mercy, patience, and forgiveness with us. But if we hold sin over people's heads, we judge them, we condemn them, we will also be condemned. It takes both. Love God and love your neighbor. All ten commandments, not four, not six, ten. So let's stop there. Once again, brethren, take your hand.